As AI continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation we can't ignore. AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. HackerOne employs over 2 million ethical hackers, and 750 of them specialize in prompt hacking and other AI security and testing. So HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large company, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI for more. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. This episode is brought to you by Gigantic. At Gigantic, you can level up your product skills through live, small group, cohort-based trainings. We're incredibly excited to welcome you to our next cohort of our product strategy training, kicking off in January of 2024. This course will take you through the frameworks that product leaders use at companies like eBay, DoorDash, Groupon, Rent the Runway, in order to scale their teams. It's taught by Ben Foster, a friend of this podcast, who is the former chief product officer at Whoop. So come join us. Go to gigantic.is. That's gigantic.is. And save your seat for our January cohort. Your potential is gigantic, and we're here to help you reach it. Go to gigantic.is to reserve your seat today. Welcome. You've got mail. So, Joel, do you remember getting the AOL CDs in the mail? Oh, my God. It was so exciting. <laughs> How about the 10th time? It was it was like a portal to this whole other world that I didn't really understand yet. Yeah. And it, I mean, I didn't even think about it at the time. I was probably like 10, 11 when, when those CDs used to show up. But that was one of the first SaaS companies and even one of the first freemium models for SaaS. And I remember like taking about 10 minutes to dial up and connect. And then I wasn't sure what to do. But finally, I'd like find my way somewhere that was like really interesting, usually probably a chat room. (laughs) And just as I was like getting excited about something, my mom would like pick up the phone to call someone. Mom, (laughs) stop it, hang up the phone. Um, You know, that's something that seems a lifetime ago of getting a, a CD with software on it. 
and, you know, loading it into your computer, that really wasn't that long ago. No, it wasn't. And AOL still makes, I think, something like four million a year on those recurring subscriptions for people that just haven't canceled or even just still use AOL as a dial-up service. Absolutely. And and they pioneered the way for so many others, um, probably without even really realizing at the time what they were doing. Yeah, they because I used to go into what was known as media play and we used to browse the software section. And that's how you bought software. You bought a $50 box of software, usually from Microsoft, and you would stick the CD and install it in your computer. And that was it. I would pay Best Buy $50 and I owned the software. And even with products like Adobe and Photoshop and and things that we all use all the time, just a couple of years ago, it was still the same. You'd have to drop a lot more than 50 bucks, but to get that suite of software was a one-time big expense that you'd have to incur every couple of years to get, you know, a newer updated version. Yeah. And getting a start as a graphic designer, I had to know that I was going to make, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars um, off of that software that I was going to be able to sell my clients. And I couldn't even get clients before owning the software. So it was a big barrier. Well, things have obviously changed a lot uh, for the better. And we're going to get into a lot of the how and why of SaaS as an industry and the insane growth that we're seeing. Welcome to Rocketship.fm, the podcast where we explore startups from funding to growth, from culture to sales and everything in between. I'm Michael Saka. And I'm Joelle Goldman. Welcome to the first episode of our SaaS series. I am really excited to get into this one today. We're going to spend the next five weeks diving into SaaS. SaaS businesses, SaaS business models, SaaS business pricing, everything SaaS. And today we're going to get into the history of SaaS. We think of selling software as SaaS, software as a service, but the truth is the terminology of SaaS alone has only been around for uh, 15 years. And many of the companies that really made SaaS a viable business model are still the behemoths today. So we're actually at a very exciting time. We're right at the beginning of selling software in this way. So we're going to take a look at the time before SaaS as we know it today came about. And this is a time when you couldn't just build a website, make an app, and start selling to mass amounts of people, where each customer you had to do a custom setup for in order to onboard them. So we're going to get into some of the why around SaaS, why SaaS was successful, why it was the one that made it, so we can better understand our business today and where it's going in the future. When Rain Wilson realized he had a special gift for talking people to sleep, he had two choices. Construct a massive speaker that would blast his voice to every person in the country or invent a talking pillow. AT&T Business eventually talked him into the pillow thing. And backed by a reliable network, the only network with built-in security controls, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your ideas to the moon and beyond at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. 
This episode is brought to you by Yahoo Finance. Wouldn't it be great if you could see all of your investment and retirement accounts in one place? With Yahoo Finance, you can consolidate your views with multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Honestly, this has been a lifesaver for me. I've used Yahoo Finance to consolidate all of my various 401k and investment accounts so I can see everything all in one place. And it makes it incredibly easy to manage. So if you're struggling with that, check out Yahoo Finance. For over 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including your 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart a great investor. And that's how Yahoo Finance ensures that you have the insights to look at your wealth in its entirety. So go to yahoofinance.com that's yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. SaaS today is a multi-billion dollar industry, but it wasn't always that way. SaaS, its, its original incarnation was known as ASP or Application Service Providers. And it had the same business model. Users would pay for a subscription to an application that they would access on a website. And this model dates back to the 1960s. We talked to Rick Chapman, who's been working and documenting ASP and SaaS technology for the last 20, 25 years. He's an author. He's a founder. Uh, but here's what he had to say about some of the history of ASP. Um, uh, uh, industry that really began in the 1960s with American Airlines Sabre system. That was a shared online reservation system for airlines that set the model for remote applications over the decades. Um, in the late 1990s, as the internet uh, began to spread and its uh, tentacles you know, wrapped themselves around every aspect of business, it became a logical uh, way to think that it would be possible to um, distribute applications from remote servers as opposed to having stuff on premise, loading applications up, and uh, you know, running them locally, which meant all the IT overhead that's always involved with that. So while the actual business model was pretty much the same as SaaS, the technology at the time wasn't as convenient as it is today. Oftentimes, ASP had to do individual implementations when a new customer signed on. It wasn't like today where anyone could just sign up no matter how big or small and just have the service running for them. Everyone would be accessing the same code base. But in the ASP days, they actually had to spin up different servers and also different servers based on where the client was. So the sales process was a lot longer, a lot more labor intensive in order to set a customer up. But that wasn't the only problem that ASP faced. The problem with the ASP movement was threefold. One, it, it collapsed. It was dragged down by the dot-com implosion. That wasn't completely fair. But it was an important factor. And as the dot-coms went down, they took a lot of ASPs with them because everyone was panicking. The second part was in certain aspects of the model, um, the internet was not fully capable of meeting all of the requirements that it can today in terms of information processing, speed, uh, reducing latency. But the, th the third and most important factor, and this is the one that you've already touched on, 
was the fact that the ASPs thought they were going to sell into large companies and big businesses and that they were going to stop using Microsoft Office and they were going to stop using their you know, server-based you know, Oracle you know, applications. And that isn't what was going to happen. And you have to remember that largely this was the time when people would go into a physical store and buy a box of software. You would buy Windows this way, you would buy Office this way, and even at home on your personal computer, you would install that software and then that was it. You'd pay once, you had that software until you wanted to buy a new version, and it was really the same thing for business software. It was bought as an upfront purchase and installed on each and every computer in the office. And you needed a large IT department to keep that going. Now IT departments are largely outsourced to SaaS companies. We don't need that same type of IT support on site. But at the time, it played a really big role in keeping companies up to date with what software was installed on what computer. And you might be thinking, well, why wouldn't people want to switch to this subscription model at the time? But you have to remember, think, think about Adobe. Think about Photoshop if you're a designer. It was only a couple of years ago that they introduced a SaaS model for that. Before, you would buy your license from Adobe, and then you would upgrade only when they had some enticing feature that you wanted to have. But when you bought Photoshop, that was it. Now you can pay $20 or $50 a month and get the full suite of software, but it took Adobe years and years in order to make that switch, and many other industries were much the same way. Why change if it works? And that right there is a big reason why ASPs failed, but SaaS companies thrived. The reason that SaaS regrew and recovered from the ASP meltdown was that it began to appear in new markets and new niches, which could not be addressed by existing on-premise applications. And that's where the growth come, came from. Enterprise adoption, um, enterprise acceptance, having large, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs running around saying we like SaaS had nothing to do with why SaaS succeeded. It was the infiltration of the model into new markets and new opportunities and new niches that could not be reached by the on-premise model that led to the regrowth of SaaS. So ASPs were going after large companies trying to convert them from their current software setup to a more web-driven model. Whereas SaaS companies, when they came out of the ashes of the ASP days, almost immediately, they went after markets that were not currently being served. And by going after those markets, they were able to build up immediate market share without having to replace the company's current software. They literally just introduced a software solution where there previously hadn't been one and people were just blown away. So we're going to hear more about the history of SaaS, and we're going to get into one of the most influential SaaS companies of our time. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Now, back to the show. We need to talk about one of the most important technology trends of the year, cloud computing. And who better to discuss it with than Salesforce.com CEO Mark Benioff. Mr. Benioff, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, great to be with you in San Francisco. Yes, nice to see you. the most famous example, perhaps, of all, Salesforce.com. Everyone knows what Salesforce.com does. Prior to that, how did you how did you track sales contacts and manage the whole process with spreadsheets? That didn't work out too well. Well, you could buy uh, a server-based version of the product, and you could have it installed, 
and you could beg IT on your knees to, to please install it for you and please do this for you. And you could have IT tell you, well, we'll get around to that when we feel like we'd like. And so when Salesforce.com came out and they said, look, would you like it for $59.95 a month? The answer was, you bet we do. So when we look at the history from about 2000 to about 2011, most of the new SaaS or the big SaaS companies were dominating niche or new markets. So they were coming out and they were focusing on markets that were underserved or that didn't even have a solution. And that's how they were able to get mass adoption. And it wasn't until recently in the last five years or so that those companies have been able to compete with the behemoths, the Microsofts, the Oracles, the companies that were dominating the 90s and the early 2000s. But by far and away, it was not because large companies endorsed SaaS. It was because the model grew by opening up market, new market after new market after new market. characteristic of SaaS is that monthly billing. And you know, sometimes we see yearly, but traditionally it's monthly billing recurring. And so I asked Rick if that was how ASPs had always charged for software. Well, the way that it would work in large companies is they would often buy seats. You know, they would buy enterprise licenses. They'd buy so many seats. Um, the software would be delivered and mounted on a server and then would be downloaded. Uh, to individual workers' uh, desktops. That's often how that was done. Uh, and, and that's another myth. The myth that it was because it was month, that, that monthly was always the dominant model. There are always companies, especially larger companies, that don't like monthly. They insist on yearly, sometimes multi-yearly. Uh, smaller companies, say uh, if you're an HVAC company, you know, home, you know, vacuum and air conditioning, uh, like monthly because they have to watch their dollars. A large company doesn't want to deal with, you know, multiple vendors billing the monthly. They just they want that all rolled up into yearly and multi-year uh, contracts. So uh, the reason for the, again, the reason for the failure of ASP did not, it did start off, that was the initial model that many companies came out with initially. Yes, monthly. However, um, there were plenty of companies back then who were interested in yearly deals. But many of the early ASPs came out with grandiose business plans aimed at massive adoption by big companies. And that was not going to, that's not what was going to happen. That's not what happened. And the biggest benefit really is commitment. You used to have to make a really big choice and commitment when you purchased a piece of software before, especially if it was for your company. It wasn't just a big cost up front for the actual software, but you needed IT people to help you get it set up. You needed them around if there were problems to help you troubleshoot them. You may have different people on different versions that are not working you know, well together. There were a lot of things that came up when you had a stale piece of software, really. Um, you couldn't keep things updated the way you can keep them updated now. The other big difference we see between SaaS and ASPs are some of the technology that's available at the time. And so I thought this was a major factor in why SaaS took off, but maybe ASPs failed. Because you have to think about it, at the time, our connection speeds were, were incredibly slow. 
and the web itself, the technology that we could write on the web was infantile at best compared to what we have today. So I thought this was a major factor in SaaS's adoption. And I thought that the the technological advances that we had made in the cloud and on the web and the way that we could write software really attributed to SaaS taking off. But Rick had a much different opinion. Actually, um, nothing. That was not the problem. I mean, you'll hear a lot of talk and a lot of times you hear this talk about multi-tenanting and, you know, distributed this and, you know, you know, latency that. And that's all untrue um, in most cases. Uh, there were SaaS companies, well, ASP companies, sorry. And by the way, I just want to make something clear. There was no technical shift from ASP to SaaS. The only thing that shifted was the acronym. I write about this in my book, SaaS Entrepreneur about when the ASP acronym died and the SaaS one was adapt, adopted. It had nothing to do with technology. It was all marketing. ASP had such a terrible reputation that companies didn't want to be, who were coming in with new applications didn't want to call it ASP. So they came up with a whole bunch of new acronyms. And I, I mean, for some reason, software as a service is the one that survived. But there is no technical difference between ASP and SaaS. That's a complete myth. So it seems like a bit of it boils down to timing around an acronym. But SaaS did revolutionize our industry. It changed the way that software was generally sold. It got rid of desktop software almost exclusively in the business world and really has now replaced almost all elements of business software is now run on this monthly or yearly or per seat model, but it's delivered in the cloud and large companies no longer have a need for a large IT department to support the entire company. Much of that IT responsibility has been outsourced to the SaaS companies themselves and they've taken on that responsibility. That's why they get paid. So SaaS is an incredibly important part of the software history. And next we're going to go further into SaaS and pricing models and strategies that you're going to want to deeply understand. It's about what we can be doing today that will change the way we think about business and approach business and really how we approach selling software. So stick around and we'll be back in a week with more of this incredible SaaS series. Huge thanks to our sponsor today, Chargebee. Chargebee is the easiest way to set up your subscription billing. If you are a SaaS company, this is essential. So whether you're brand new, you're just getting started, or you're already up and running, but you don't want to have to deal with the maintenance and the issues around subscription billing, go to chargebee.com forward slash rocket ship and sign up for free. They have a free tier. So really, there's, there's no risk here. Huge thanks to Rick Chapman today for coming on and sharing his knowledge on the history of SaaS with us. Rick has written multiple books. You can check it out. 
most relevant to this series is SaaS Entrepreneur. So Google Rick Chapman SaaS and you'll find his work. You could also subscribe to his newsletter at softletter.com. He's been running that newsletter for over a decade and it's filled with tons of really insightful information. We'll be back here next Wednesday with more from our SaaS series. You can follow us on Twitter at RocketshipFM. I'm at Michael Saka. Joel is at Joel Goldman. And if you haven't yet, please, please, please leave us a review. All right. We'll see you right back here in just a couple days.